grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our epistle reading today is from Romans chapter 8. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to use them, follow along. We're going to be in chapter 8 with some verses. And and Romans chapter 8 contains some of the most well-known, most beloved, honestly, promises from God in all of Scripture. It's a joy any time we get to hear them. But I do want to draw your attention to the fact that near the beginning of our epistle reading today, there was this question that was posed by the Apostle Paul, and he says, what then shall we say to these things? It's in verse 31. And, and so it might ask us to, to think about, well, what things is Paul referring to? And so it's right for us to try to figure that out. And I think the least we can do is zoom out and look at the entirety of Romans chapter 8. Because our epistle reading today is really the, the end of the chapter. It's the climactic conclusion to this chapter of Paul's letter to the Christians who were in Rome. As we talked about earlier, it is an abundantly full and theologically rich chapter of the Bible. Really, this whole section of Paul's letter as we said, Paul is ending it then with these beautiful promises from God. But, but what was it that led him to proclaim those promises? Well, as we zoom out and look at the rest of, of chapter 8, we see that, that Paul really has been talking about two main things. And that is the two types of struggles that we find that we have in this world. The first is the, the struggle of sin that takes place within each and every one of us. And the second is the struggle of living in a sinful and fallen world. So the struggle within and the struggle without. So first, Paul tells us that we are sinful by nature. And and left to our own devices, we, we turn away from God. Scripture calls this our sinful flesh, which is our bodies and souls that are corrupted by sin and rebel against God. And so earlier in in chapter 8, in verses 7 and 8, he says, for the the Apostle Paul says, for the mind that is set on the flesh, again, our sinful nature, is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the sinful flesh cannot please God. And we know this to be true in our own lives, even if sometimes we don't want to admit it. We know that we're not perfect. We're not even close. Imagine for a moment that your mind and your heart had some kind of history function that you and others could see, similar to how an internet browser records every website you've, you've gone to, every keystroke you've made. And if that were true, well, then that would be a tremendously terrible thing to see. If somehow others were able to see the thoughts that you've kept to yourself or, or hear the words that you've only said in private or to know your true feelings towards certain people. If that were true, if that were possible, then I'm sure we'd all be truly embarrassed of our sin, full of shame and guilt-ridden. But there is one who already knows all of that. One who knows exactly what and who we are, and that is God. And we know it too, of course, when we want to admit it. When we are convicted by God's law, by God's holy and perfect law, we know our sin. We know our sinful nature. We know our sinful desires. But in our lives, God has given us something else. 
God has also given us his Holy Spirit. And so Paul writes in chapter 8, verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In other words, God has taken residence in you, in your body and soul. He has given you the Holy Spirit. So then, where does that leave you? Well, it leaves you in a struggle. With your sinful nature on one hand and your life in the Spirit on the other. Every day you're alive, you're going to feel that struggle. And so one minute you might be feeling pretty good about the things you're doing and saying and thinking, not in a prideful way, just content and in line with God's word. And then the next minute you do something or say something or think something and you think to yourself, how could I possibly have done that? We resonate in those moments with Paul's words just a chapter earlier in Romans chapter 7 when he says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And this is a struggle. This is the first struggle that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8. The second is the struggle of our living in a sinful and fallen world. When mankind fell into sin, it didn't only affect us, like we were somehow isolated from the rest of the world. No, it was like a stone that was dropped in water, and our sin had a ripple effect on all creation. So much so that Paul writes in Romans 8, starting in 19, that all of creation, this earth, its creatures, and all the universe, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That is the day when Jesus comes again to redeem and restore us. And Paul goes on, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning in pains of childbirth until now. So there's this eager and even painful longing that creation has for Jesus to come back. Because right now this world is so broken. This world, the way it is, with all of its sin and suffering, with all of its sickness and pain, with all the temptations that are out there, with all of the attacks from the devil, with death, this is not the way God intended it to be. God designed this world. He created this world to be perfect. He called it very good. But our sins subjected it. And our sins subjected us to the consequences of sin, which is death. And so what we see in this world today and in our lives is yet another struggle. A struggle between people, a struggle among creatures, a struggle between us and the earth. It's the struggle of sin that surrounds us each and every day. And yet, despite all that, despite all the ground that Paul covers in Romans chapter 8, and this is now back to our epistle reading, Paul writes in verse 28, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. What a beautiful expression of the gospel promises that God has for us. We know this. We take it to heart by faith. But when you contrast that with everything that Paul had just talked about, all the struggles that we face in our lives, this promise does seem to be a little out of place, doesn't it? When we consider all the things in this world, all the, all the struggles that Paul has talked about that we face when Paul says all things work together for good, does he really mean all things? 
It seems like there are two paradoxical realities at odds with one another. That on one hand, we know, according to God's word, that he's working all things together for our good. And yet, on the other hand, we know that there are so many things in our lives that are not good. Like sin, and sickness, and death. That there are very real and very sorrowful and very sinful moments in our lives. And so we can't help but turn to God and look to him and say, why? Why, God? Why the struggle? And so we arrive back at this question with which we started. When Paul asks in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? Because Paul's asking the same question that we're asking. How can this be? How can both of these realities be true? Why the struggle? Why are things this way? What shall we say to these things? What do you say to these things? And most importantly, what does God say? Well, God, through the Apostle Paul, doesn't immediately answer the how question, at least not yet. God doesn't answer how it is that he is working all things together for our good, even when there seems to be so much evil out there. And he also, he doesn't answer the why question, why the struggle. And the reason is that before God addresses either the how or the why question, he instead chooses to answer the who question. You'll notice that right after Paul asks, what then shall we say to these things? Paul goes on to ask four who questions right in a row. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer to all four questions is clear. The answer is no one. On account of Jesus' life on this earth, which was lived in perfection for our sake, and on account of his sacrifice on the cross as payment for all of our sins, and on account of his resurrection from the dead, which is the final defeat of our death, no one is against us. No one can bring a charge against us. No one condemns us. No one separates us from the love of Christ. Not us, not another person, not the devil, not sin, not anything in this world. And so Paul goes on to write, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And again, not based on what we do or what we have done, but all based on what Jesus has already done for us. So the ultimate answer to any who, what, where, when, why, or how question is Jesus. Only Jesus. Of course, there is still yet another part to this, which just comes from our everyday living. And that is that if God truly loves us, and he does, and if he has done so much for us through his son Jesus Christ, and he has, then why the struggle? Why do things have to be this way at all? Why can't the peace and health and restoration that we are promised in Christ come right now? Why do we have to be patient until Jesus comes again? Well, that's actually the the ultimate theological question 
That is the, the question that is at the heart of our human experience here on earth. And it's much more than a hypothetical scenario or something like that. It's something that we experience and know as we live, as we are the ones when we live through the struggles, whether it's a struggle of temptation to sin or the struggle of a chronic or terminal illness or the struggle of the pain of death or anything else that we may face in this lifetime. But it's a question that doesn't always get an answer from God. My dad, who was a doctor, died a little over three years ago now. And still, when I think about it, I don't know why God permitted him to to struggle with brain cancer and die at a relatively young age, all starting at the age of 60. I don't know why God, in his wisdom, deprived his family and his friends and his patients and all others that my dad was able to have contact with, why they were deprived of having a godly man on this earth a little bit longer. I don't know why. Now, I have been given the ultimate answer of God's own son, Jesus Christ, which is, of course, the most important thing. And God has promised that my dad and and me and you and all who have put their trust in Jesus will be healed in eternity one day, will be made perfect in eternity. But until then, there are days on this earth when it comes to certain hardships, when we experience particular struggles in our lives that we don't have the answer to why. Again, God gives us the ultimate answer, which is Jesus, and that is sufficient, even if it means that days right now are hard. But another thing that can be helpful in those moments is to help frame this a little bit. Something that can be helpful when we are facing our greatest struggles, when we may not always know the answer to the question why, is to rightly frame our time here on earth, to keep the right perspective. And I find myself often going back to something the well-known author C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis was born in Ireland. He was a soldier in the British Army during the First World War. He was stationed in the trenches on the front line in France, He watched many of his close friends die. He himself was injured. He suffered the tragedies of war. And famously, during this time, Lewis was an atheist, an atheist. But eventually, with the influence of some very close friends, he became a Christian. And so when the Second World War began, he tried to return to military service. He was 40 years old. He thought he could help recruit and train new soldiers, but the army declined. So instead, from 1941 through 1943, the heart of the Second World War, the BBC in in England asked him if he would come up with a series of religious programs. And so his job was to explain to the audience, which was essentially the entire country at that point, what Christianity was all about in in a simple and understandable way. God had given him the opportunity to speak to and to offer encouragement to a war torn and weary England. Well, the scripts of those radio programs were eventually collected and and put into a book. And it's probably his most one of his most well-known books, Mere Christianity. 
And so this book came to mind, not only because of the struggles that Lewis himself went through personally in his life, but because of what he talks about in that book, particularly in a chapter called The Invasion. And it helps us understand how we as Christians can view life in this world. Lewis writes this, he says, Christianity believes that this universe is at war. But it does not think that this is a war between independent powers, like a a good force and a bad force, and they're equal. No, this thinks it is a civil war, a rebellion, and that we are living in a part of the universe occupied by the rebel. And so Lewis is referring to the fact that this world, from an external point of view, seems to be in the hands of of the enemy, which is the devil, but it's also our own sinful nature, the ways in which we participate in the rebellion, and the sinful world participates in the rebellion. And so Lewis calls this the enemy-occupied territory. Now that phrase, enemy-occupied territory, that would have been, of course, well known to those in Europe in the first half of the 20th century. They knew exactly what that was all about. That's where the fighting was taking place for them. But back to how we view this world as Christians, this rebellion that's going on and in this world, it's a rebellion then of all of its creatures against its creator, and that's why we see this world in a struggle. But God is not an idol God. In fact, he has chosen to lead the counterinsurgency. God has started the invasion. And God didn't choose to send his best angels into the fray or or to send his lieutenant or his second in command. No, God himself came into this world 2,000 years ago. God in human form. And Lewis calls him the rightful king. And so with a D-Day-like landing, the rightful king became one of us and slowly but surely began taking back enemy territory, that is territory that is rightfully his as king, but had been previously spoiled by the enemy, spoiled by sin, spoiled by death. But the rightful king was liberating this land with perfect healing and life and salvation. He liberated us. And so now we are on God's side and we are part of that counterinsurgency. And the reason why I find this analogy so helpful for me is that it helps me better understand our current situation. When the Allied troops landed in Normandy in 1944, everyone began to realize that the outcome of the war was no longer in question. But it didn't mean that there still wasn't a lot of fighting to do. There was, and it was difficult, and sometimes it was a slog, it was a struggle. But everyone knew that it was only a matter of time until the enemy was pushed back finally and fully and the victory in Europe, which had essentially been won, would become fully evident. And so the same is true for us. When our rightful King Jesus Christ invaded his creation at Christmas and he won his victory at the cross on Good Friday, And at the empty tomb on Easter Sunday, the outcome of the war was no longer in question. Today, we are not uncertain about what will happen to us, what will happen to those who have their faith in Jesus. Yes, our days include days of struggle and fighting and sometimes asking the question why, just as it did for those allied troops who were pushing back the enemy. But the outcome of Jesus' victory for us is absolutely certain. We are simply waiting for that victory to be fully and 
finally visible for us and for all. And that's the confidence then that Paul is writing to us as Christians, that he's writing to the Romans. He says in all these things, we are more than conquerors, not because of our efforts, not because we won the battle, but because of Jesus. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so that's what gives us true hope in life, true assurance, true comfort, true forgiveness of sins, even in the midst of the most difficult times, that even on days that we struggle and fight, we have this peace and assurance. So our role right now is as the church militant. We fight the good fight with all that's going on in this world and in our lives, but we must remember this, that we are not fighting because the outcome is somehow hanging in the balance, because it's not. We are always leaning toward the day when we will join the church triumphant, all those who are already at rest from their labors with Christ and together with them, We will see the final conclusion to the invasion that our king started so long ago. The day when the victory that he has already won for us by his death and resurrection will be all that we see. In Jesus' name. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.